I invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and ask that you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And I look out today with a certain degree of delight. I'm seeing people I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, Samuel uh, here today. It's how wonderful to see Molly and, uh, and to see Jamie as well, although maybe she's not feeling well. She's, I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. And, and others as well. It's just it's a delight uh, to see uh, evidences of the Lord's answered uh, prayers uh, here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 is, as many of you uh, know, one of the most controversial uh, sections in the Bible. One of the, perhaps one of the most uh, terrifying for those who profess faith. In Christ and have some fear perhaps that their profession of faith would prove uh, invalid uh, at the last day because the Lord does warn that not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven Uh, but not only is this one of the most uh, fearful sections in God's word but it is followed by perhaps one of the more encouraging sections of God's word. And so what I want to do in uh, setting the context, and if you're visiting here, uh, we have been in this text for uh, a number of weeks. We're going to consider verses 9 and 10. Um, Part of the awkwardness of preaching sometimes is always say to guys, you have to figure out what text and how much of the text. Uh, And this is somewhat of a a breaking up a text here um, uh, that maybe should be all together, verses 9 through 12. But I do want to read the first 12 verses, and then we'll pray uh, once again. Now, the writer here is following up uh, uh, an exhortation or a rebuke as given to the congregation, and, and uh, this is a recorded sermon. Uh, that's what we have here in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews. And uh, the writer is making an argument that you ought to stay faithful to Christ because he is a great high priest. And what a joy and blessing that is when we understand that we need a high priest and we have a high priest and a great high priest and a faithful high priest and a merciful high priest, but he is a high priest after the order of a man named Melchizedek. And uh, the the preacher recognized and realized that for some, uh, that was going to be an overwhelming thought and it would be proved to them to be too much and, and, and the expenditure of mental and theological energy to grasp that was a proof of a, a, a kind of retrograde uh, in their faith. They should have been further along. They should, in fact, become teachers of these truths, but they had remained babes needing milk and not uh, solid food. Therefore, he says, now leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. That is, we will go on. That is, we are going to get back to Christ and Melchizedek. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, And put him to an open shame. 
For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, so thankful for these buts in God's word. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do or continue to minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would now draw near to us and help us as the word of God comes. And Father, aid uh, not just the preaching, but Father, again, we pray, aid the hearing. Father, that the hearing may be with power, that it might be in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Father, that your word would fall upon good soil and bear good fruit unto eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's imagine for a moment here that uh, you have gone on vacation and on that vacation you have the opportunity to interact with uh, some people and some of the people you interact with you find out are professing Christians. Maybe you see them reading a Bible or uh, maybe you have mentioned to one, or t- one of them or other that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and, and they say, well, well, I am too. And let's imagine that there are two people in this scenario, these two professing believers that you engage in conversation with. After the initial joy of hearing that this one professes the faith that you profess, the longer you engage in conversation, you find yourself maybe wondering. Again, you you don't want to be judgmental. You don't want to be harsh. You don't want to be unloving. But you sense something's off. That is, despite the profession of faith, that is, I'm a Christian, I go to such and such a church, I've been baptized. There's something missing, some, some evidence we might call of, of life. There, there doesn't appear to be anything of the fruit of the Spirit in that interaction. On the other hand, you interact with this other person and you go away from that conversation full of joy and full of confidence that that this one is in a state of grace. Now, again, we are not the final arbiter of this. But I simply want to, has that ever happened to you? You ever ever found yourself doing that? Maybe you visit a church or you're somewhere or it's a relative and you're talking to them and and you're excited because they profess faith, but the more you, you converse, the less confident you are. But with another, the more you converse, the more confident you are. Let me ask you, if you've ever done that, What's the difference? Are you relying on some mystical sense of the spirit bearing witness in your spirit that they belong to them? Or uh, what are you concerned about? What, what is it in the one or what causes joy in the other? Now, that's the question I want you to think about because that's really what's going on here with the author of the book of Hebrews. He said, listen, I'm very concerned with some of you. 
but not with all of you. In fact, there are some of you, even as he gets into this second section here, where he said, beloved, we're confident of, uh, uh, that there are better things concerning you. He's also going to say, but I, and I want to feel this way about all of you. So some have departed. Many seem to remain. And he's going to address people with whom he's very confident. And he's going to address some to say, I'd like to have this same robust confidence in all of you. And so it's striking to see this preacher follow up one of the most heart-searching sections in all of the Bible with one of the most confident assertions of his hearers being in a state of grace. So again, for some weeks now, we have been examining the pastoral concern of this preacher, the writer we often refer to him as. And again, we have we have speculated, we can't be sure that there may well be a different writer than the preacher. That is, one preached, another wrote it down, edited it, and this is the written uh, sermon. So sometimes we'll say the preacher, sometimes we'll say the writer. Uh, this heart-searching section, the concern rooted in this state of spiritual stagnation regarding the effort that's needed to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Why aren't some of you invested in this? Could it be that there's something more or spiritually dangerous than just spiritual infancy? He had truths to tell them again, to show them regarding the glory of Jesus, truths that would bind a wandering heart to him. We sing that at times, bind my wandering heart. There's no better way to bind your wandering heart than to know more of the person and work of Jesus. Truths, however, that some of them were choking on the solid meat of teaching this high priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek was too much. And again, the question came, why this stagnation? But now he says, having given this warning, he now wants to speak a word of assurance and hope to those in the congregation. And so what I want to do in opening up verses 9 and 10 this morning uh, is to consider the confidence of the preacher uh, stated and then expanded and then proven. All right, so those are the three things we want to look at. Consider, first of all, the preacher's confidence stated. This confidence is a confidence in the salvation of his hearers. That is a confidence that God really has done a work in them. And we're reminded here that this text taken as a whole and the book of Hebrews as a whole is never meant to undermine anyone's strong assurance. I'm not trying to make anybody here who says, listen, you think you're a Christian? I doubt you really are. That's not what the writer is trying to do is certainly not what I have tried to do in expounding this book. We can and we ought on the basis of what God has revealed in his word that we can have a strong assurance not only of ourselves but of others as well. That we can confidently call others brethren and celebrate the good work of God in others. We're not, we're not meant, because there are warning passages and there are warnings about being deceived, it doesn't mean we ought to look at everybody suspiciously and view every profession of faith with a, a kind of hateful scrutiny. That's not what this text 
is saying, yes, there are false professions. And yes, there is something that is called apostasy. But there are also those who can say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. There is laid up for me a crown of glory, Paul is able to say. Not I hope there is, there is. And again, the fact that some do not have a right to solid assurance of salvation does not mean that others do not or cannot or should not. We can, by the help of the Holy Spirit, make our calling and election, in the words of the Apostle Peter, sure. And we can face the world to come with a hope and a joy born of the promises of God and the evidences of the work of the Spirit of God. Now, to whom does he speak in this manner? Who is he talking about? Well, note here, verse 9, the words, but beloved. But beloved. This is an expression that the Apostle Paul uses over 30 times in his letters to speak either of various individuals or also of, and especially of, congregations. And if you read your New Testament, you'll find Peter, uh, James, and John all use this term. I was, uh, I was talking to a pastor this past week, and we had a long discussion. He's a pastor down in the Miami area, a Cuban uh, pastor, and we were having a long conversation about preaching and churches and all of this. And he says, are you, are you one of those brother congregations? He, called me. he said, hey, Brother Jim, are you one of those brother congregations? He said, you call each other brother, 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 sister. I said, yeah, we do. You know, hey, brother, how you doing? Sister, how you doing? And, and, and brethren, and I said, no, even sometimes it's beloved. He goes, ah, it's too much for me. <laughs> I, I said, well, it is, it is Bible. I, I, one of my dear old pastors now with the Lord, that was his common way to address his congregation, beloved. And I thought, well, maybe when I'm getting, so I'm in my 60s now, so I can feel more, feel more grandfatherly and everything like that. So I, but that ought, to, that ought to flow from us. It's, it's not a, yes, it seems maybe antiquated in some way, but it really is endearing. And it speaks to us of two primary realities. Both are so crucial for life and ministry. First of all, he, when he says beloved, he means you're loved of God. And when you put it in that way, look at this one, you're beloved of God. Do you, do, you, do you feel something of the more intensity and the inf- affection of that? Yeah, we say God loves us. Yes, he's good to us. He takes it. No, you're beloved of God. Written on his hand, written on his heart, the apple of his eye. That's, that's the idea. When Paul addresses the church in Rome, he does so in chapter 1 in these words, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. And called to be saints. If they are in Christ, they are regularly to be reminded that God loves them. The term speaks of affection and desire. That is a sense of dearness. You're dear to the Lord. You believe that? You're dear to him. You're his children, your sons and your daughters. So he uses this family language, this affectionate language. Why did, of all of the illustrations that, that, that on earth represent our relationship to God, why is it that they are primarily familial? 
Now, I realize that not everybody has great marriages and not everybody has great relationships with their parents, and all. I, I recognize that. But you do understand that those are meant to be sweet and meant to be delightful, that, that when a man speaks to his wife, it's, it's meant to be tender and, and loving and generous, and that he, 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 he wooed her, he sought her, he wanted her. God sought you. Son of God came into the world, the world to seek and to save that which is lost. You're on his heart, on his mind. He has written to you of the greatness of his love. We sang about some of that this morning. Paul calls it a love that passes comprehension. He speaks to us as children uh, that we should behold what, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called not just the servants of God, It's just the creatures of God, but the children of God. You're beloved. Uh, You don't use a term like that to speak about things that you're indifferent toward or just distantly related to. Like, I'm never going to talk about my beloved White Castle. (laughs) Charlie might, but uh, uh, I'm not. But there might be other places. Somebody said, you want to have pizza? Oh, my beloved pizza, you know. Uh, my beloved pasta, whatever, you know, or my, my children. When I talk about my kids, I talk about my grandbaby. It's a whole different way. I love your kids, but they're no Eleanor. You understand? <laughs> understand that? It's beloved. You get the idea of that, right? That's right that it should be so. Believers who have been so sat through this ministry in which they were so strongly warned and exhorted need to be reminded that God deals with them in this way as children. Because one of the things you do with people you love is you warn them sometimes and speak plainly to them. And kids, when your mom or dad speaks plainly to you and gives you a word of warning and maybe even some discipline, it's not out of hatred. Well, I trust it's not out. And that when they say to you, listen, I really am doing this because I love you so much. That's the idea. And when he disciplines us, we're going to come to that argument, God willing, later in the book of Hebrews. He does it for their good out of a heart of love. Now you see again, the, man, the writer uses this phrase, though we speak in this manner. Beloved, though we speak in this manner, that is, though I, I, I have spoken in ways that may cause discomfort. This manner may have caused some anxiety. It may may have made you wonder if God really loves you or even if I love you as your pastor or preacher. It may have made you wonder if anyone can enjoy a robust and confident assurance. Can anybody sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine? He says, do not misunderstand my purpose in speaking to you the way that I do or mistake God's heart in revealing such truths. And so this... Speaking in this way, beloved, not only speaks of God's heart, but I believe it also reflects the preacher's heart. When Paul is writing hard things to the church in Corinth, he reveals his heart in writing these words. 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I do warn you. You see the difference? Well, why does he talk like that? Why does he have such a hard edge to his ministry, to us? What is he doing? Well, listen, I'm trying to shame you. I'm trying to, I, but, but sometimes they give a word of warning because I love you so much. 
You see something of the depths of Paul's affection for the people of God when he writes in a passage like Philippians chapter 4, among others that we could look at. But this one I find is especially compact. He says in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I mean, that's dripping with affection. And with longing, why not simply say to the people of God, stand fast in the Lord? Doesn't that convey the same thing? Does that not convey the same? That's what he wants them to do, right? He wants them to stand fast. What does this add to the message? What does all this extra verbiage, my beloved, long for brethren, my joy and crown, beloved? What's that add to a ministry? What does it add to the preacher and his preaching and his preparation? And what does it add to the hearer? Well, brethren, I suggest to you, I have down here, it's everything. A ministry that is orthodox but unloving, true but lacking in affection, will not be sustainable either to the preacher or to the hearer. In fact, a ministry of the word devoid of love is a clanging symbol. He's personal with them. He knows them. He loves them. The departures of some, the falling away of some, perhaps to the point where they cannot be restored, is upon his heart. And he is affectionately in earnest with those who remain. As he considers who they are in comparison to some who have fallen away. As he thinks about their life in comparison to theirs, he tells them that he is confident or persuaded that there will be better things for them than for the apostates. Now, the term used here is a grammatical form which expresses that this confidence is sure and fixed and firm. I stand confident in this. I'm hopeful for you. He says again, though we speak in this manner, though we give a warning when we speak in such a way as to confront something in your life, it's not with cynicism. It's not because we're angry or frustrated. We realize that the wording is strong, but it is given to you with the confidence, again, that Paul expressed to the Philippians that the God who had begun a good work in you will complete that work on the day of Christ Jesus. The hope is that the word of God coming to the people of God at times with sharp confrontation will prove effectual in their lives. And that despite sometimes of of lapse or despite some carelessness of hearing that they're not where they ought to be. And again, there's no contradiction to saying, listen, I still believe God is working in you. But when he says to them, you're not where you ought to be, it's with a hope that they will become that way. Guys, I'm coming alongside to encourage us. I'm not coming helplessly or hopelessly. I'm not coming up here and saying, with no use in preaching to that group of goats out there. What's the use? Doesn't matter what I say, they're not going to do it. I have seen pastors who are gripped with that kind of cynicism. Oh, I'm talking this way with the hope 
I love you. I'm confident that God loves you. And I'm confident that the Lord is going to do something in you and through you. A pastor who does not have that confidence in his preaching when he ministers is really saying, I'm not preaching to sheep, but to religious goats. If you're confident you're, you're pastoring or preaching to a real church, you ought to be able to speak to them as the people of God and appeal to them as the people of God. All right, so secondly, the preacher's confidence expounded. So he says, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So how is his confidence expressed? Or another way to put it, what are the better things that he believes will come about through a confrontation, a faithful confrontation, a warning through the ministry of the word? Why does he labor thus for the saints in this manner in which he did, both with wooing, as he does at times in this sermon, and at other times with warning? Well, again, he believes that God will use these things to bring about in their, in their lives the things, this is a fascinating phrase, which accompany salvation. This section, especially the verses to follow, and particularly verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love with which you have shown toward uh, his name in that you ministered to the saints and do minister or continue to minister. Some have interpreted that, that this is a section teaching a salvation by works and that God rewards the work with salvation rather than accompanies salvation with works. Do you understand the difference? That's the difference between orthodoxy and another gospel. That, it's the difference, Galatians 1 warns, of life and death, of the message of God, and a message that even if it came from an angel from heaven, is under a curse. Works which produce salvation is damning. A salvation that has works that accompany it, that flow as a result of it, that come because when God saves a person, he not only does something for them, but in them is the truth of God's word. And again, while some have misunderstood salvation by grace to mean that God is indifferent to the holiness that must follow salvation. Others have sought to say that salvation ultimately depends upon us and our faithfulness. And it may sound like I'm straining out gnats here, but brethren, we need to understand the difference. Note, these things accompany salvation, not result in salvation. But they do, and always do, accompany a work of grace. And though I can't see God's declaration of your justification, I can see the things that accompany salvation. A tree is known by its fruits. By its fruits, you shall know them, right? He believed, Paul believes, we believe, and we assert, of course, that if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, young or old, male, female, whoever they are, no matter where they live, no matter when this has transpired, if anyone is in Christ, in union with Christ, which God does in salvation, they are a new creation. 
The heart of stone, as Ezekiel tells us, is removed. And a heart of flesh, flesh is almost always a bad term in Christianity. Here it's a good term. A heart of flesh, stony heart, fleshy heart, unbeating heart, beating heart, the idea. Dead heart, living heart. A heart of flesh is placed in us in the new covenant by the spirit of God. And in this, Jeremiah tells us, in this new covenant that Christ has come to make, we are given a new mind as well as a new heart. And on that mind and on that heart are written the law of God. That is, there is now a new desire, a new disposition, and a new power to do what God has said. Teach them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you is the capstone of the great commission. So not only are they new creations, Paul said, but old things have passed away. That is, there are things that marked us that no longer mark us. New things have come. That is, new things, the things which accompany and come with salvation has come. So that where there was hatred, the old life, Titus chapter 3, there's now love. In place of self-dependence, there's now prayer. In place of lust, there is a striving after purity. In place of anger and bitterness, contentment and peace and patience. In place of despair, a hope born of the knowledge of the character and power and promises and love of God. These will be the things that accompany salvation. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control are the work or the fruit of the Spirit of God. It's what the Spirit of God does. When he comes, it's what he does. So there are, there are writers, right? well, say, let's say painters, there are painters who, who always sign their, their, their work. Or some, some painters never sign their work. But some painters, when they're done, they always write their name on it. And you look at it, and you look at it very easy and go, that's a such and such, that's a so and so. Look, he always writes his name, that's his signature. This is the signature mark of the Spirit of God. Has he given you a new heart? You know what he's put in that heart? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He's put his fruit in, into their life. So again, in every society and at all times, when God saves a sinner in New York City or Erie and Jaya in Vietnam or in uh, 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 Newfoundland, wherever it is, he brings about certain things. There is what we would call the standard package. These aren't options. They're always there. So that if they're not there or rarely there, it does bring into question the reality of one's conversion. That is, you, you talk with somebody and you think, where, where's their joy? Where's their love? Where's their patience? Where's their kindness? Where's the goodness? Where's the gentleness in them? Where's the self-control? Whatever it is, you're, and you're saying to yourself, look, if the Spirit of God has done a work, it's not wrong for me to expect to see that. It's, like, it's not wrong for me to expect when I go to McDonald's, they're going to have hamburgers. Well, what do you mean? Well, why are you judging us? Why would you think we'd have... Because you're McDonald's. Well, you love the Lord, don't you? Well, why, why are you making such a harsh judgment? You love God's people, don't you? Well, you're, you're getting a little bit preachy there, legalistic. That's not pharisaical or legalistic. It's righteous expectation. 
Because a soul's been brought from death to life. They've experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's been shed abroad in their hearts. Spirit of God dwells in them. That's the standard package, not options, standard. Now again, those are not the things that save you. Jesus saves you by his works. Faith is the empty hand that lays hold of the work of Christ, whereby we stand justified. It is by his works that we are saved, not the labors of our hands can fulfill thy law's demands. You are not saved because you love the brethren. But if you don't love the brethren, you're probably not saved. And again, I realize, well, that's just gobbledygook. No, it's not. Well, then I'll I'll start loving them and then I'll be saved. No, look, no, you may need to fly to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. You may need to say to yourself, why, if I have experienced the greatest love in the world, that there's so little love in me. But there are things that belong that accompany salvation. There is a love to Christ. There is a love for the people of God. There is some love for the word and some longing to obey some fear of sin, and again, brother, not just fear of hell, but sin. Because Jesus didn't, you shall call his name Jesus, where he will save his people from hell. Now he'll save his people from their sin. Some people fear sin, but, or fear hell, but love sin. And that makes for a very awkward kind of Christian experience. There is a pursuit of holiness that the writer to the Hebrews is going to say, without which no one will see the Lord. So he's confident that God does his work in the hearts of normal people whenever he saves them. There is, a, there is here a confidence, again, that if exposed to the word, if confronted with the truth, that God's people will respond. This is where I have to battle my cynicism sometimes. This is hard sometimes. And I realize at times I'm not so much afraid of confrontation as, I mean, as we are the response to it. And what that says sometimes is, at least what I I fear at times in my own soul, that when I think I need to say something to somebody, my hope ought to be, if they're a child of God and I'm bringing the truth of God, they're going to be thankful for it. That ought to be the case. We ought to be able to speak to everybody here in that manner. But we don't do that sometimes, do we? See, we're afraid if I say something to say to somebody, hey, brother, listen, I've seen something. I want to bring it out. And this is what the Bible says. That you know, and Rather than saying, thank you, brother, thank you for that faithful, loving way. Well, who do you think you are? Well, you're no, be- you know, whatever. And so we, we don't say anything. And when we don't say anything, what we're expressing is actually a lack of confidence in somebody's conversion. I can't say, remember what Abigail said about Nabal? You can't say anything to him. And if there's a Nabal in your life or somebody in your Christian experience, you think it's a Nabal, what you're saying is, I don't think they're a Christian. Ultimately, it's what you're saying because the hope of the believer is, and what wisdom produces is a heart that will say, thank you. Okay? We should be, we should be confident of better things with each other. The things that accompany salvation. Jesus said that a sheep would hear his voice and they would follow. All right. Now let's consider the preacher's confidence proven. This is fascinating. 
So I'm going to ask a question, and I'm not asking you. This would be great. We could take a whole Sunday school class or two at this. What encouraged you the most in the life of a professing believer? Outside of an orthodox confession, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, born of a virgin, suffered under... You know, whatever it is that you would give as an orthodox confession, a, a confession without which we ought not to have confidence that someone's a believer. What are the kinds of things, so what I'm asking, that really encourages your heart? When you've been getting to know someone and you see this in them, so for some, perhaps, it's theology, right? Someone shares our confession. And I've been there, I mean, I know, I, I, you know, particularly long ago, there was a time when I could probably count, I mean, I, I thought I knew every Reformed Baptist pastor and church in America. 30 years ago, it's like, who's, who's that? You know, when I first started saying, well, who's that? It's kind of like, well, how come I don't know them? You know, I know and now it's like, you know, like people got it tattooed on their hands, and they got it's all it's all their T-shirts. I got I got I just got given a mug last week with 1689 on it. You know, so it's like everybody now, or like in a certain theological tr- that tribe has grown greatly. It's someone who shares our confession, who loves the authors and preachers we love. Oh, you got that? Go to their house. You got that book? I got that book. You listen to that preacher? You know, whatever it is that shared sense of joy. It might be a shared philosophy of life and, and even of culture we get excited about they have the same views and convictions and burdens you do so of all the things that the preacher could say that gave him hope that he is addressing the people of god and that he's confident that the things that accompany salvation will be seen in them that they will respond to the word of god and be able to grow and move on to perfection and leave behind not leave behind the elemental things but build on the elemental things and grow to maturity is how they loved and served each other that they were a bunch of deacons that's the word that's used here deacon they were deaconing each other they did and continued to deacon each other it was just in their past it was in their present We've got to remind ourselves, you don't, you don't win a race in the third lap. You don't win a race at the beginning of the fourth lap. You win a race when you cross the finish line. God is not unjust, he says, to forget your work. And obviously he's saying, and I don't forget it either. God, the God who has warned, the God who loves you, is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered past tense to the saints and do minister present tense. So I say our ministering is probably a better translation. It would be unjust of God to look at your life and to see some of these concerns. That is you're choking on some meat right now. And not to see that there are signs of life in you. To not so fixate on a backward theology or theological immaturity. And not to see the loving work of the spirit done because they know God and love God. That's that's the argument he's making. God rewards his work in us by the Spirit. 
It's really something, isn't it? God works in us and then rewards us. Paul addressed this tension when he said to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And some preacher preaches that, and I'll come back in two weeks and I'll give you the rest. Well, Paul didn't do that. He just maybe took a breath and said the next words. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Laboring by the Spirit, God works in you. Strive to work out what God commands you. The writer addresses here what he calls their work and their labor of love. And this appears to be, this is what their work is. It is resulting in a labor of love. Now, we use this expression. How many of you ever use the expression, it's a labor of love? Do you know it came from the Bible? It's here and in 1 Thessalonians 3. This is, these are the origins of that expression. There Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So we remind ourselves that work and labor and love are not contradictions. I do believe that love makes labor sweet, but it doesn't always make it easy. And we're reminded here that to love someone, to really love someone takes effort. If it doesn't take effort, then Jesus said you're just like the Gentiles. You love those who love you, easy peasy. But Bible love demands of us something akin to work and to labor. In fact, the word labor used here is a very strong word, to labor unto pain and sweat and toil. It's a word that you would use to describe labor that is exhausting and backbreaking. So not drawing a picture with crayons with your kids. It is digging a ditch, digging a hole, pouring concrete, you know, whatever it is that you'd look at and you get to the end of the day and your hands are blistered and your back is hurting and you're needing to guzzle water or Gatorade or something like that. Sometimes loving each other is like that. I wish it weren't. Shame on you for making, I'm just kidding. So, you know, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. So when we say labor of love, we speak about how doing a project, when I say labor of love, if somebody said, hey, thank you for doing that, you know, that was really nice. I said, look, hey, hey, for me, it was a labor of love. What you mean is I'm just really happy to do it. I, I enjoy doing it. I love doing the work. I love the people associated with the work. But when the preacher uses it, he means love that is costly and painful. But that's, again, what love, true love, enduring love, love that never fails, looks like. It'll drive you to your knees. It'll send you to the word. That's what it'll do. Whatever else love implies, it's not easy. My son got married a few weeks ago, and among the vows you take is basically, I will love you whether you're well or sick. I'll love you whether you're poor or whether you're rich. I'll love you in hard times as well as in good times. Love Love calculates all of that in. In fact, the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 shows that love is hard. Love is patient. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love is not easily provoked. Shows us that love is not always easy. We want it to be, and we're shocked when it loses its sense of fun and adventure, hence the reason some couples separate. But love can, though love can ride the highs, it shines in the lows. This love is a love that works. 
And how does it work? Well, it works, notice the text, in a faith-focused service toward others. I say faith-focused because it's done with an eye toward God. Now, there are some who love the fruit of Christianity, but not the root of Christianity. They want the kindness and the service and self-giving of Christianity without the God of Christianity. But the Bible says all of those truths are rooted in who God is. That's why we give and to try to, to try to become givers and philanthropists without the God who loves the world is ultimately foolishness. They do it in his name. It's done in his name. I've quoted verse 10. Some of you may have gotten a card from me. I don't write many of those. I'm bad at that. My wife is very good at that. But very often over the years when someone has shown me kindness, and some of you have shown me kindness, and I hope I've said thank you. I've sent a text or an email, but I don't do this all as well as I should. But when I do, I've often quoted Hebrews 6.10. Out of context, of course. Uh, but I said, God is not unjust to forget your work done in his name, your labor of love in which you do minister to the brethren, you know, have ministered and do minister. I'm, I'm trying to say, look, God sees your work and I see your work. Now that part's right. And I'm trying to show when I would send that to somebody that even if I miss it or fail to honor it with words or a note, that God is not like me. God is not unfaithful like I am sometimes unfaithful. God never forgets. And it is right and proper for God to remember and to reward, in a sense, those who serve us. So what I mean is, what I'm saying is this. If if someone does something for us and we turn around and do it for them, then it just becomes a relationship of labor and reward. But when we honor someone or show love to someone and show them in words and deeds that we love them, and we do it in faith unto God, as Jesus teaches, expecting nothing in return. That's what Jesus teaches in, in Luke's gospel. Though directed, toward do, though directed toward doing good enemies in Luke's gospel, I'm going to read, read this now. Directed toward our enemies, there is something of the heart that Jesus speaks of. When he says, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's how God is, and that's how we're to be. What makes this ministry, again, literally we might say deaconing, is that it is presented in two forms, past and present. The fruit of salvation is seen most fully in the scriptures, remember, relationally. And that's why when Jesus says what he does in Matthew 25 so profoundly, When he talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats on that last day when he stands or sits on his throne and he gathers the peoples and the nations before him and he separates them according to the sheep and goats, he does not. So Now, obviously, again, there are doctrinal differences. I'm not minimizing theology. It's behind all of this. It says there is here. You do it with an eye toward God. I'm not minimizing theology But again, good theology void of active love equals nothing. And the question on the last day comes, who did you love? Who did you serve? What did you do for people who couldn't do anything back to you? Well, I don't don't know. There's the goats. But what manifests itself in the heart of the sheep 
is a love and service for one another, a costly love and service rooted in the love of God. What saints and what needy people found their way into your heart or home or wallet or clothing closet or time? That's the question that's asked. This work, this labor of love in which the people of God minister to the saints in the past and in the present is again, is again rooted in their love and devotion to the Lord himself. And in a real sense, it is rooted in his own love and devotion to you. See, we love not to be loved, but we love because we are loved. We serve because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When Jesus said to do what I do or to be what I am, he gives two powerful examples of what he meant. Doesn't mean preach like me. Doesn't mean, you know, the Jesus diet or anything like that. But he says this, you want to know what I mean when I say be like me? You really want to know? When I say you're going to be like Christ, it means two things. It means you serve like I serve and you love like I love. That's what Christ's likeness in the body of Christ looks like. You love like I love and you serve like I serve. He begins with service. He washes the feet of his disciples. Serve like I have served. I have washed your feet. Now you go and wash the feet of one another. And then later in the chapter, chapter 13 of John's gospel, love one another as I have loved you. But by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, they have shown this work, this labor of love. And in the word of God, it's not just toward the saints or others who benefit from it, but it's done toward God's name, not, not, for, not for our reward, not for our repayment, but because we love him. It's in his name, that is, it's in his authority, by his command, and in grateful devotion for what he has done for us. And this is why, despite their theological dullness, despite their immaturity in other areas, this man of God could look at them and say, I am persuaded, I'm confident, that the Lord of glory has begun a work in you. And when the throne of self has been shattered by the grace of God and the heart made new beats as a heart of flesh, it shows itself in loving service to others. Now, for sure, there will be more than that. As I said, a heart for the word, a life of dependence, a love for Christ, a care for the souls of others, a desire for God's house, all of those things I think we could all look at if we were doing a full-orbed sense of assurance. But it is right to say to somebody, when you're looking at them and you're considering their profession of faith, understand what I mean by this, where's your basin and where's your towel? Jesus divested himself of his robe. He picked up a basin, girded himself with a towel, and he washed feet and he said, now you go and do what I've done. Are you limited by age and infirmity? Then wash feet at the throne of grace. Are you financially fearful? Trust God and, 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 and give to others and see how he will honor you. I'm not saying, and I'm not saying by that, make sure that you give to us the church. I'm saying, look, you say, look, I, I don't know if we can afford, afford to give to somebody else. Try God. Are you limited by time? 
or by space. You got a 200 square foot apartment or whatever. Find a way to show that love that's in your heart. The Lord will help you to be creative in your desire to show love because you have been so loved. And again, this is where all this begins. There is no salvation to be joyed if there is no salvation to be had. And why do we have it? Why is this so relevant? Because our faith is rooted in the reality of this great one, this king of glory, this great high priest who entered heaven with his own blood, who having loved us, loved us to the end, who washed us and cleansed us and still in some wonderful way serves us before his father's throne by interceding for us. In this is love, not that we have loved God and not even that we have loved one another, but that he has loved us and offered his life to save us from our sins. But if that love has come to us, if that saving love, that justifying love comes, it becomes a transformative love, a love that we imitate and a love that we share. If you want to love like that, you've got to be loved like that. You need to accept and to receive the love of God in Christ, a far greater love, a cleansing love, a justifying love, a saving love, but that turns in our souls into a serving love, a love for others rooted in God's love for us. And when God does that, brethren, we can say we're confident of better things concerning you because there are things in you that accompany salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can read your word and look into it and expound it and apply it. And Father, pray now that you would work it deeply in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.